Well, as uh, we've mentioned, we are finalizing today our study in the book of Jonah. Uh, it's been an interesting account, and some of you have heard and read and studied this story for years, and perhaps to others it's uh, relatively new. It's one of those stories that skeptics look at and say, come on, seriously? Uh, but, but I don't, I guess waste my time is the right thing. I don't want to spend the time to debate whether or not this could happen because I admittedly have a predisposition to assume this book came from God. And so what's here is true. And uh, whether you think there's a fish big enough or a guy could survive it that long, doesn't really matter. Uh, God made it happen and he made it happen for our edification. And so we could learn some things, right? So, so can we do a quick review? God came to Jonah in chapter one and it said, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian empire. And I want you to tell them 40 days from now, they're going to be destroyed. Now in inherent and implicit in that is the assumption that if they don't do something about it, they're gone, they're done. And uh, Jonah said, yeah, I don't like them. Uh, I don't think they deserve your grace or your mercy to be shown to them, so I'm not going. <laughs> now, we all would like to think we would never be so brash as that with God, right? So he takes off running, and he goes and he hops a ship, and he is on his way to Joppa, or he goes to Joppa and is on his way to Tarshish, and the Bible says that God did not just say, oh, okay, I'll find somebody else. God said, no, I really want you to go. And so he threw a storm at him. So he and these other mariners on the ship, this storm is horrible. The mariners are scared out of their minds, which are guys that don't generally get scared on water. And uh, they're like, Dude, what happened? What have you done? And he says, interestingly, I worship the Lord, which is really curious how we can say, I worship the Lord while we're disobeying him, right? But we, we seem able to do that. And uh, they immediately were struck with fear because they're like, you do not do that. And so they said, well, what do we do? He said, well, throw me overboard. Well, it'll be fine. And even the mariners had more compassion than he did because they're like, no, we can't just throw you overboard. And, uh, but eventually they did. It got worse and worse and they finally threw him overboard and it just got dead still. And they worshiped. Jonah, thinking perhaps his, his great horrible struggle with being obedient to God was over because he was going to die, instead went down to the bottom of the ocean and God had appointed a great fish to come and pick him up, both for protection and transport, it seems. And uh, so he gets swallowed. I mean, we didn't spend any time talking about what that must have been like. And here he is in the belly of a fish. Now, I don't think it was anything like Pinocchio. You know, I don't think it was so big he made a little fire down there, you know, and any of that, right? I don't, it was, there was nothing even remotely pleasant about this experience. But while he is there, and he's there three days and three nights, symbolic of the descent of Christ into the earth, three days and rising again on the third day, right? Jesus uses that same analogy, say that's the sign you should be thinking about. 
he repents of his sin. He has this uh, prayer that he prays to God that's full of quotes from the Psalms in the Old Testament. Jonah knew the Bible, but still didn't want to do what God had told him to do. And so we had left chapter one with him in the belly of a fish. We leave chapter two, the Lord speaks to the fish and he vomits Jonah out on dry ground, which is just a whole nasty thing to say when you're preaching, right, in church. But, and there he sat for a whole week, as far as we were concerned, because we didn't come back to chapter three till last week, when Pastor Marcus led us through that conversation and described this time God said, now I want you to go to Nineveh, right? If that, if that were your mom, what would she say? Don't make me ask again, right? I mean, how much worse could it get? You just spent three days in the belly of a fish. Do not make me ask again, Jonah, go to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh, gets a day in, starts preaching. You got 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown and then he leaves town. It's fascinating to me what happens next. Now the people hear about it and they repent and they turn to God. A people who, they weren't just like not very nice. These were horrible people. I don't mean to pick on uh, authors that try and do children's books, but I saw one one time that described this as and Pastor Marcus mentioned last week this, this idea of a great fish. They worshiped the great fish, right? I saw a children's book one time that said the problem with Nineveh was they all had fish in their hands and they kept slapping each other with them. And Jonah said, stop doing that. So it was way worse than that, right? These, these people were awful. Their king talked about how he skinned people alive and he chopped off heads and stacked them up. I mean, he was a horrible person and the people didn't seem to have any love loss for uh, especially the Jews and yet they turn from their sin they repent they realize this is real this is true and they beg God for mercy so that leads us up to today so I want to wonder as we're thinking about Jonah today this, this is a chapter for all of us who struggle with control issues. I think that's probably all of us to some degree or another, right? We, we may not all be in the category of control freak, or we may not realize we're in that category. But we all really want to control how things go down, and I think we're going to learn some things from him. But here's the transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, and I don't have it on the screen, so let me just read it for you. Word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The, the way that you demonstrated a repentant heart. A repentant heart is obvious, right? We don't just kind of quietly say, oh, I'm really sorry. There's something obvious that changes when we're truly repentant. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. We're going to fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to our God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's the disadvantage to chapter breaks, right? It's a continuing story. So here's a guy. He's a prophet. He is going to a nation to tell them God's revelation to them. And they listen. Okay, sometimes it is a little surprising when someone says, you know, a while back you said such and such. I've had people do that to me. Like, I remember you preached three years ago here, and man, you said this. And I'm like, great. I don't even remember saying that. But somehow or another they remembered. And I'm always taken back, not because nobody's listening, but because, you know, we don't always remember everything we hear. Jonah wasn't just surprised that these people actually listened and repented. Jonah was mad about it. It displeased him greatly. I I cannot imagine. I just can't imagine preaching to a bunch of people, having them all, their lives just transformed by the grace of God, and then going home and telling my wife, doggone it, that just makes me so mad. I can't believe they actually listened to what I said. None of us can imagine that, right? I mean, if you, now you might find it a little surprising, but if you said to your kids for a week straight what to do, and they did everything you said, you might be a little surprised, right? But you wouldn't be mad about it, I don't think. Jonah has preached to all these people, and so this is how the, the beginning starts. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Doggone it, Lord, I knew you'd be like this. And he's mad about it. He's mad about the things that make God, God. It's a power struggle, right? God didn't do what he thought God should do. God didn't live up to Jonah's expectations. God made a determination to do something, and he didn't consult Jonah first, and Jonah was mad about it. That's not how I think this should play out, Lord. He's talking about the character of God. He's quoting the Old Testament. Do you remember from Exodus. This would have been back in in what he would have known as the law. In the book of Exodus, see if I can do that one-handed without spilling my water. There we go. When Moses was on the mountain with God and said, could you please, I want to see you. I want to be closer. I want to be more deeply and intimately related to you. Would you show me your glory? And God said, I can't do that. You will die. 
No man can see my glory and live. And so he hid him in a little cleft in the rock. And then he passed by, and the scriptures say he declared the name, the reputation, the character of God. And he said just these very things in Exodus chapter 34. He, he described for him these things. He descended in the clouds, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who our God is. That's his character. That's not how he acts. It's who he is. So when somebody says to you, I just don't think it's right that, something has gotten completely switched up because it is God who's merciful, and it's God who's gracious. And so when someone suffers the just penalty of their own sin, that's not God being mean or cruel or unkind or harsh. That's God being slow to anger that they lasted this long. And we don't want to admit that, right? We don't like to admit that the fact that I'm still here is a demonstration of God's faithfulness, his compassion, the fact that he's slow to anger. Listen, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, my intention is not to, pardon the phrase, to scare the hell out of you, right? That's maybe a little harsh way to word it, but I don't want to scare you and have you say, oh, well, I don't want to be separated from God for eternity in hell. I'll be scared into heaven. But at the same time, I don't want you to miss out on the reality that God is slow to anger, but he is not without justice. We want to envision a God that's only those things, right? He's good, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger. We don't always like to talk about, especially if we're not rightly related to him, about the fact that he's holy and he's just and he does the right thing and he will not tolerate sin. All of those things are also true and they are all true at the same time, which if that's hard for you to understand, join the crowd. God is beyond our complete understanding, but we still get in power struggles with him. God, I see, I knew you would do that. And I don't think it should have panned out that way. He's slow to anger. Do we have 2 Peter 3, 9 on there? I think we do, Brad, yes. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God does not destroy everybody because he is slow to anger. And we think that if God lets anybody suffer the consequence of their own behaviors, well, that wasn't very kind. They lived 49 years. That was kind. We forget how holy God is. We forget how perfect God is. I watched a, a video one time with a couple of theologians and they were just taking questions from the crowd and they got talking about Adam and Eve. And somebody said, doesn't it seem a little extreme that they ate the fruit and God kicked them out of the garden and they died spiritually and cast the whole human race into sin? Doesn't that just seem like the punishment didn't meet the crime? 
And a couple people talked, and then one guy stepped up, and he said, what is wrong with you people? And he proceeded to explain how holy and perfect and just God is. That he didn't kill him on the spot was merciful, but we don't want to look at it that way. You cannot act that way. See, here's the problem. Two things that we want. We want to understand if God is going to do things a certain way and things are going to pan out in some kind of way, we want to understand why it's that way. It begins at about age two or three, right, parents? We're doing this. Why? And we think, oh, good, we grow out of that. We never grow out of that. We want to know why it's this way. Why me? Why does this have to happen? Why that person? We want to know why. And there's just a little part of us that thinks to ourselves, well, if God can't explain himself to me, I shouldn't have to accept that conclusion. We want to know why. More importantly, and perhaps more dangerous, we want autonomy. We want to be able to decide for ourselves, do what we want, have perfect freedom of choice and responsibility. We don't want somebody else telling us how things are going to be. We don't like it when we're kids. We don't like it when we're teenagers and we think our parents are dumb. We don't like it when we're young parents and our kids think we're dumb. We don't like it. When the boss tells us to do something and we know it's a bad choice, we don't like it when we're in the military and someone who is above us in rank says we're going to do this and we know, no, no, that is a bad decision. And we do what we're told to do. We don't like it because we want autonomy. We want to be able to do our own thing. We want to be able to decide how God is supposed to act. When Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that we are to love our enemies, we want to be a little bit like Jonah. Even those ones? When we experience the forgiveness of God, like Jonah did, we're a little bit like that unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 who was forgiven a relatively small debt, large but not insurmountable, and his master forgave him. And he said, whew, and he went down the road and found another servant of that same master who owed that one, the first servant, a ton more. And he grabbed him by the throat and started to choke him out and said, you need to pay me right now. And when he couldn't, he threw him in prison which, of course, is just dumb because how's he going to pay you if he's in prison? But regardless, it didn't matter because it was a debt that couldn't be paid. And the master called back the first servant and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you and you weren't willing to forgive him. We want autonomy. We want to get to decide who's worth forgiving. We want to get to decide who deserves grace and mercy. Can we 
can we kind of get something clear so we can quit having that conversation? Nobody deserves grace or mercy. Those are things you can't deserve. If you deserve them, they're payment, just like salvation, right? That's why it talks about not being able to earn. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy. God looks at us with mercy and says, I'm going to save that one because they just repented and turned from their sin and believed in the gospel and received my solution, my son. Jonah wasn't too happy with it. So I want to kind of parse out what has happened to him here. He's dealing not only with with his uh, control issue, right? But he's dealing with some selfish pride. Let me read beginning in verse 3 down uh, through most of the rest of it. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. I can't believe you were merciful and gracious and slow to anger to those people. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city. He didn't even answer. He's so mad, he just turned and walked away from God. Went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there, and sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So I'm thinking it hasn't been the 40 days yet, and he's given the message, and he's starting to see what they're doing, but he's just going out of the city to say, I told him. And he's wanting to watch God rain down his wrath on this city. When the sun rose, oh, excuse me, I didn't finish. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a, oh, no, I'm still ahead of the game, aren't I? Sorry. Oh, that's because they're right on the mark and I'm not paying attention. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Do, are we, we're seeing all the irony here, right? Jonah is so mad right now that God was gracious to this whole city of people and God grows a plant so that Jonah's not uncomfortable. Poor Jonah. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Oh, it's so hot. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. (laughs) There are several things that demonstrate themselves to be true. Number one, our pride leads us to be unreasonable. A short while back, Jonah had been in the belly of a fish, had repented of his sin, and God had been merciful to him and given him another opportunity to do what he needed to do. And he's offering this sacrifice of praise, quoting fluently from the Old Testament about the greatness of God and his mercy. 
He's delivered from the belly of the fish, and now he's so mad he wants to die. What has intervened? Only a whole city of people repenting of their sin and turning to worship God. What a horrible experience for Jonah. Poor guy. But that's not why he's mad at the end of the chapter, right? It's much worse. He's mad because the plant that made him just a little more comfortable now died. Poor Jonah. Should have made that the title of the message, right? But honestly, I could have written the title of the message to say, poor David. Poor, insert your name. Because I get so upset when things aren't the way I think things should be. Jonah was happy or sad based on his circumstances. We've talked before here, right? Happiness is based on happenings. He's happy one time because, I mean, being in the fish is not a good thing, and now he's not. And he doesn't smell all that great, but he's alive and able to function and go on with life. Now he's sad because God acted like God. He was gracious and merciful and slow to anger. He, he did what Jonah knew he would do. He was faithful. And so he's allowing his feelings to dictate his thinking. That always makes us unreasonable. Now that's a whole conversation about uh, counseling and so on that we, we should save for another time. But whenever you are starting with your feelings and moving from there to your thinking, you're going to be unreasonable, I promise you. This could be a conversation about prejudice, right? This is a group of people that Jonah didn't think merited God's kindness and favor, and so he just wanted to avoid them. He didn't like them. Okay, I know God's merciful and gracious, but I don't think they should get it. Perhaps another day as well. There's a second thing that's true because he's dealing with selfish pride, and that is he found himself isolated. He left the city. Now think about it. He was a day's journey into the city. Surely, by the sounds of it, this happened very quickly. These people began to repent. So here he is, a prophet of God. He knows the Old Testament. He's been quoting it. He knows exactly what he could tell these people. And now he has not a city full of people that are ready to kill him, but a, silly, a city full of people that are now worshipers of God and they know nothing about him yet except that he's been merciful to them. That's a pretty fertile place for ministry, if you ask me. Of all the people on the planet right now, the people in Nineveh would have now welcomed him. But he goes outside the city by himself. He isolates himself. Elijah did the same thing. Remember his story in 1 Kings 19? He went through all this amazing stuff he honors God, he lifts him up, he calls in all the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, and they do their thing and nothing happens and he just simply prays and God answers with fire that laps up a sacrifice that he's put there without ever lighting a fire to it and all the people are like, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they kill all the prophets of Baal. It's an astonishing day of victory for the Lord. Then he gets an email from Jezebel, 
By tomorrow, this time, you're a dead man. And he takes off running. And he travels for a little while, and he gets a little bit of sleep and gets a couple of meals, and then he travels for about six weeks and goes to hide in a cave somewhere. He isolates himself, and God comes, and what does he say to Elijah? What are you doing here? I don't, we don't always read it with that inflection, right? But I just got to imagine God is slow to anger, but this is one of his prophets, and I suspect there was just a little bit of, dude, what are you doing here? Why are you hiding in a cave? Why have you isolated yourself? It's really easy. When things aren't going the way we think they should be going, we isolate ourselves. It's commonly because we're either fearful or we're angry or we're discouraged or some negative emotion, and so we isolate ourselves. It can be really dangerous, right? Because now the only person listening to our complaints is us. And so the only person listening is affirming what we're saying. And we get in this spiral. We're disconnected from our community. Insert small group starts next Sunday. <laughs> and so there he sits. But can I tell you something else? If you can get past the emotion and the struggle and just give it a minute, sometimes when you are by yourself, you hear God most clearly. And so God comes to Jonah, though he has isolated himself, and he does this really nice thing for him. There's one third thing here, though, one, one additional thing that I think is true of Jonah because of his selfish pride. He's self-absorbed. He thinks only of himself. Jonah, as it turns out, was an idolater. And the idol was Jonah and his own personal comfort and his own desire to have things work out the way he felt things should work out. I said earlier, we may see a lot more of ourselves in this story than we want to, right? God appointed four things in this story that it specifically says. He appointed, well, five. He told Jonah, he appointed Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. He appointed a fish for Jonah. He appointed the plant. He appointed the worm. And he appointed that east wind, that Scirocco. Of the five things, the human made in the image of God is the only one who didn't do what he was told to do. I think I know better. Wasn't that how Satan got the couple in the garden, Adam and Eve? You're not going to really die. God knows that when you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. You can bypass what God has said and decide this for yourself. It's the same insidious temptation over and over and over again. You just do what you think is best. I only got five minutes, I know, so we got to go. Jonah was what I would say is spiritually myopic, not, not physically, right? Not, not, you know, you're not, not nearsighted. I can only see what's right here, right? If I'm looking at my computer screen, I'm good. Otherwise, I'm wearing glasses, Got to wear them to drive or 
it'd be even worse. Myopathy, not in the physical sense, but in the, the uh, illustrative sense, according to Webster, is lacking in foresight or discernment. Narrow in perspective and without concern for broader implications. Or, yeah, but what about me? What about what's happening right here? There is much Jonah has to learn. He can quote the Bible effectively, but he doesn't yet really understand the God of the Bible. A third thing in these last several verses, Jonah is struggling with a misplaced affection. Verse 9 again, but Jonah, or God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh? great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What an incredible object lesson that Jonah simply thought was God being nice. I'm awfully hot and God gave me this plant. Wasn't that nice of God? When God was giving him an illustration, an object lesson to teach him something about his own misplaced affection. It was about his personal interest. You cared about that plant as long as it did what you wanted, as long as it provided something for you. God put in place this object of Jonah's affection, which was his own comfort, and he contrasted it with the object of God's concern, which was that city full of people. Now, if you read two commentaries about this, you'll find two different opinions on whether there were 120,000 people there and they spiritually didn't know their right hand from their left, they were unaware, or whether that means there were 120,000 young children, so hundreds of thousands of more people. Either way, there's a lot of people in this city, God said. I made them. You care about a plant you had nothing to do with. And shouldn't I care about that city? God wasn't even saying you should care about that city. He's saying you're telling me it was wrong of me to be gracious and merciful, merciful to those people. Why should I not care for them? You cared about this stupid plant. I know I'm editorializing a little. But that's the issue of personal investment. You didn't have anything to do with this plant's existence, yet you cared that it died. I created these people. I sent my word to these people. I have seen them repent. Should I not care for them? It's interesting to me that the story ends there. <laughs> it's actually fascinating that we don't know whatever happened. Did Jonah ever finally get his act together? Did he ever go back into Nineveh and say, okay, listen, you guys repented. Here's what you need to do next. Let me do a little discipleship. Let me help you know and understand this God that you have turned to. I don't know. 
We're just left with him hearing from God about who God is and his grace and his mercy, which as it turns out is a pretty good place to end, right? So let me give you a couple of thoughts that I know are written on your bulletin. God is in charge and you are not. Just in case you have come under the mistaken impression that for some reason you should be in charge. God is in charge. Now I know things get out of your control, but you'd still like to be in charge. Why do we hate it when things are out of control? Because we're not in control. We don't like it when we're not in charge. Unless, of course, things are going the way we think they should, then it's fine. Just because God hasn't acted as you thought he would or should doesn't mean something has gone wrong. God is in charge. Secondly, God extends his grace to all people, even you. So we look at those other people, the ones that we think are worse or for some reason don't deserve or probably wouldn't care even if I did try to talk to them about Jesus. We look at those people and we think, well, but somehow we think that we're just this much deserving. We are not. God's gracious. He is gracious to all. And since he is gracious to all, we get to be his children through faith in Christ. We can never forget the gospel. We can't ever forget that we are sinners. We deserved separation from God. And that we were in need of repenting, turning from our sin. We have to always remember that. It's one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul. He was major church planting material, right? He was, he was like, he'd have been the president of the missionary organization after a while in our day and age because he was good at it. He'd done a lot of it. He had put teams together. I mean, the dude was management material. But he said, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of them all. We have to always remember the gospel. God didn't get a, a plus when he saved me. He was gracious. I didn't deserve it, and he saved me anyway. So I, I recognize I'm a sinner. I turn from my sin. I repent, and I believe the gospel, which I've already talked about, right? Jesus came, and he lived the life that I would never be able to live no matter how hard I tried. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, was buried in a tomb, and on the third day came back to life again the symbol of Jonah, the sign of Jonah in the New Testament. And so I turn from my sin, I believe the gospel, and I receive Christ. It's not, it's not something that I have done, it's something I have received. And now I'm in Christ, and God looks at me with favor because I'm in Christ, not because I've become such a nice guy. God's grace extends to all, even you. And then a question that I, I hope is a probing question. What 
or perhaps who is your Nineveh? What is it that God perhaps wants you to do and you're avoiding it? Now, it's possible that somebody's here and God wants them in another place in the world to go take the gospel message to other people. It's certainly possible. Chances are even greater, though, that God has stuff for you to do here, right now. We talk all the time. I haven't said it in a while, so I'll say it again. What are the four ways we develop disciples? What do we do here? We connect, grow, serve, and multiply. We connect in corporate worship. We grow in small groups and spiritual formation classes. We serve the Lord in a ministry and a mission. A ministry is here. A mission is out there. And we multiply. We make disciples who make disciples. Some of us will make disciples who will continue to go. Others will be the ones to go. We, we do all of those things because we don't want to be Jonah. So at the risk of being too pointed, it may be something right here. You've heard Pastor Marcus or me talk about the need for worship personnel. And you can sing or play. And you're just like sitting there, don't let anybody know, don't let anybody know, don't let anybody know. Or children's ministry. We need people to serve. I don't just want bodies down there. I want people who love kids. I get that. But you may be really good with kids, but you're afraid if you say yes, you're going to be stuck down there two or three weeks out of the month. You might be. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. We're not big enough to have the luxury of you get to serve the Lord once a month at Coastal. It might be twice, but it might give a parent a chance to come up here and not have to think about their little one so they can hear the gospel and be saved or they can be transformed by some teaching that's going on upstairs here and have an opportunity to just for an hour not have to pay attention to their kids. You might be a much greater blessing than you ever imagined. Maybe you just are really good at smiling and greeting people. And you can, you can actually hand them a card and shake their hand with your other hand at the same time. <laughs> and be smiling and friendly and welcome them. And you know enough about Coastal and enough about our building that you can say, oh, you need children's ministry? It's downstairs right under where we're standing. And right? First impressions is really important. We got a lot of stuff going on around here. Maybe one of those things is your Nineveh is my point. Maybe you're just, you know, God has been pulling at your heart and you know you need to do something. And you just, I just can't do it. I can't bring myself to do it. Listen, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not going to get swallowed by a fish this week. It's probably not going to be that bad. But back to chapter one, the title of the message, I remember it. God is not asking he is our king. He's our master. He calls the shots. I need to do what he tells me to do. And what's fascinating is when I do that, that's when I find joy and freedom. 
Not because I finally gave in, not because I finally followed the right rule, did the right thing, but I have, I've been obedient. I've made my father happy. And there's something in me that has joy when I do that. So listen, man, there's a lot in this story, right? I'm so glad for a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. We get to serve a God who is not a horrible taskmaster. Maybe you work for somebody that's just a brute and you don't want to be there. That's not God. I was completely undeserving and God knew it. I was unholy. My punishment was coming. It wasn't 40 days away, but it was coming. And God did everything that needed to be done so that I could be right with him. He meted out the penalty for my sin on his own son. If that's not gracious and compassionate, I don't know how to define them. So listen, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, man, I would love to talk with you afterwards, or we have folks that'll be down here under these screens after the service. Come on up, have a talk with them. They'd be happy to do it. Or maybe there's just something going on in your life. You need somebody to pray with you about something. They would love to do that. Maybe take care of some business with God before you go. Maybe you just need some prayer support. Come on down and talk to them. Whatever it is, let's not be Jonah, okay? Let's, let's not only know about God from his word, but let's know God and let's trust him. Let's trust him that whatever he is doing or bringing into our life, we're going to be part of what's happening and we're going to trust him with the outcome. All right? Good deal. Listen, our team's going to come back up while I pray, and then we're going to sing a bit together, and we will leave uh, after our benediction. So let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you for being patient with me. I see so much of myself in Jonah, uh, and uh, I'm really grateful that you continue to give me opportunities to serve you and live for you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here today, and I know that uh, some of them are perhaps feeling that same push. And uh, Lord, we're just grateful for who you are, that we can trust in your character. Uh, and Lord, I pray for the one who may be here that isn't yet a brother or sister in Christ because they've never trusted in Jesus, never made their relationship with you right. God, I pray that they would repent of their sin. They may not be as bad as the Ninevites were, but they fall short of your glory. So I pray that they'd be willing to repent of their sin, believe in the gospel, and receive Jesus. God, I pray that you would do what you need to do in our hearts, even as we continue by singing. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to stand. We're going to reflect again on all of the blessings and all of the reasons we have to sing and praise God's name.
receive this blessing from the Lord. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. If that's your prayer, say with me, amen.